This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Coming up on today's show, Alberta doctors who've been accused of spreading COVID-19 misinformation are suddenly facing unannounced inspections from the College of Physicians and Surgeons. We'll talk about that. Alcohol and cannabis sales rose across Canada by almost two and a half billion dollars during the pandemic and the metaverse we're told it's on its way what does it mean and what should we prepare for so it looks like the provinces decide well not necessarily the province in all cases but um certainly um the province and um alberta health and things like that when it comes to businesses that are continuing to flaunt the restriction exemption program a number of them were issued with closure orders about 13 of them province-wide last week. Uh, And on top of that, the College of Physicians and Surgeons of Alberta has started doing their own inspection of doctors where they have been receiving reports of misinformation from patients. Interesting, we haven't seen this before. Where does the law fall on this? Is that something that we can um, expect more of? It's a really fascinating question. So we're going to get into it now. We're going to have a chat now with uh, Lorian Hardcastle, who is an assistant associate professor in the Faculty of Law at the University of Calgary. Uh, Lorian, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate your time today. Thanks for having me. It's a really interesting development and one that I don't know if a lot of us saw coming. Basically, what, what's been going on? These are unannounced inspections for certain doctors by the college. Is that right? That's right, and and there is a provision in the legislation that that allows for these kinds of inspections, uh, but of course they haven't been used in this way yeah. before. Um, now, these doctors that are being inspected, how were they um, selected for inspection? What was the reasoning from the college? Do we know? Yeah, they've said that they're they're doing it in response to to complaints, and so when they receive complaints or information that uh, a physician has been engaging in inappropriate prescribing, for example, of ivermectin or granting uh, inappropriate vaccine exemption letters, that's when uh, that's when they plan to do those inspections. And the college was alerted to this kind of activity through complaints, right? That's what they're saying, and these were patients who let the college know what was going on. Yeah, I think it was complaints. I think there were also, though, uh, complaints not only from patients, but from other physicians. Right. And I think we're seeing a, a bit of a trend towards that. We're seeing bodies like the college and other health professionals wanting to distance themselves from some of their, their colleagues who may be spreading that misinformation. Um, ultimately, what power does the college have here? What, where could these inspections lead? a variety of sanctions ranging from a caution or a warning right up to suspending someone's license either temporarily or or even permanently um now these doctors there's there's we we know that like i think there's been four or five inspections something like that according to the college um so it's not a huge number but they get a lot of attention and uh, so you're saying that perhaps doctors are saying you know what they're they're making it tough for all of us is that the reasoning here Yeah, absolutely. I think what we have is a situation where you have a handful of doctors 
who are opposed to public health restrictions, who are opposed to public or opposed to vaccines, and they get a disproportionate amount of attention and, and airtime. And often those those anti-vax movements choose those those voices to amplify. Mm-hmm. And we've seen some of them participating in rallies or or these sorts of things. And so I think that that the vast majority of health professionals are pro public health restrictions are uh, do believe in vaccines, but um, these these voices tend to get amplified who aren't. I'm wondering, I mean, these are doctors, right? I mean, these are medical doctors, and I'm sure, you know, they don't all agree on the same thing all the time. I mean, who who decides um, what, what, what you can and what you can't say as a doctor? Yeah, and, and, and that's sort of an interesting point, is there is there is certainly room for, for gray area, and there are certain areas of medicine that not everyone agrees on. I think, though, where, where perhaps the, the college gets concerned is where um, not only are these, are these people um, opining on, on maybe some of the risks with vaccines or concerns with vaccines or talking to their patients about, you know, for your particular risk, I would or wouldn't recommend right. it, but rather they're, they're coming out and, and talking more broadly about these are untested, these are unsafe, and, and making some more general concerns that just aren't backed up by the science. And so I think there's a, a point that you go from um, warning your, your patients about reasonable risks, and then you cross over into just making claims that are not evidence-based, and, and that's what we would be concerned about. Interesting. Yeah. So uh, expect to see more of this, I would say, right? Yeah, and this is we're seeing this all across the country. We're seeing um, various health professional bodies crack down on on misinformation, um, and and also some of the some of the professional bodies issuing statements that are pro public health measures or pro vaccine for healthcare workers. Um, so it's really part of a bigger trend. Interesting. Yeah, we'll see how this goes. Uh, thanks so much for your time. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having me. Yeah, you bet. That is Lorian Hardcastle, who's an associate professor in the Faculty of Law at the University of Calgary, and like everything surrounding COVID, and but I think this one, perhaps more so than some of the other discussions we have, is going to be very, very uh, divisive. Taking a look at how Canadians... Um, well, at least purchased and most likely used substances over the course of the pandemic. Alcohol and cannabis sales across Canada rose by more than $2.5 billion during the pandemic. A pretty big number. So let's get some insight into what that tells us. We have James McKillop, director of McMaster University's Peter Boris Center for Addictions Research. James, thank you for your time. Appreciate you joining us today. Great to be with you. So, um, two and a half billion, uh, it's a big, big number, obviously, but I'm sure billions are spent on certainly alcohol and cannabis in Canada anyway. So, how much of an increase is this year over year? That's a great question. So, the first thing to be aware of is just how much is spent on alcohol monthly, and that's $2 billion every month. And okay. when we look at the overall pattern over the 16 month period within COVID, the alcohol numbers were $1.6 billion, so it was approaching an additional month's worth of alcohol that was purchased. The much bigger spike was for cannabis, okay. which before the pandemic was uh, only around $150 million a month and is now closer to $350 million a month. Okay, so the details on the study in terms of how these numbers were arrived at, when you talk about $2.6 billion more, so that's year over year or month over month and then totaled up, that, or is that a year over year increase? 
So it's actually over a 16-month period. We looked at okay. 16 months since uh, March 2020, when the pandemic started, to June of 2021, and we compared that to the previous 16 months starting in November 2018. The findings surprising to you? I mean, all throughout the pandemic, we heard stories about people turning to substances more than they had before, some out of boredom, some to deal with the anxiety. So or were you surprised by what you found in this study? I was. I, I think that what really stood out were two things. The, the first was that after that first month uh, where we saw the big stockpiling spike, the alcohol purchasing was higher, but it really returned pretty much back to normal. Okay. It really was only increased by about 5.5% over the 16-month period. The difference, the other thing that surprised me, was the difference with cannabis, where we saw, compared to our estimates, a much larger increase. And that wound up being close to 25% larger over the course of the 16 months. And that's a big increase overall. Um, and you mentioned something interesting there. Did you manage to track it? I know it was over the course of 16 months, but could you see that there was a much larger increase at the beginning, the middle, or the end? Is it starting to level off, or is it staying pretty much the same? We looked at that kind of uh, fine-level detail. And so for alcohol, it was really interesting. You could see a very noticeable spike in sales around that period when we heard a lot in the news about stockpiling. Yeah, And then things started to go back approximately towards normal month after month. For cannabis, we saw a very similar level of initial stockpile, but it didn't really stop there. It continued month after month to be higher than our estimates by quite a lot. Um, and that's what I think was, was really interesting to us. Um, what do you anticipate going forward? I mean, like, are we going to see a, a new crop of, a crop of substance abuse in our country that we're going to have to deal with that's been established over the course of the pandemic, or is it too early to tell? It's too early to tell, and we have to be pretty cautious. These data are around sales, so what they tell us is about people buying these okay. products. That don't They don't really tell us about whether people are using them at high levels or high-risk levels or even developing cannabis use disorder or alcohol use disorder. But they do give us a, uh, a bit of a, a, I wouldn't say red flag so much as yellow flag, to say we should be really paying attention to levels of substance use and thinking about providing resources for people whose habits have changed over the course of the pandemic and maybe showing more probable, pro- more problematic patterns. What would that look like in terms of more resources? What should we be taking a look at sort of putting in place as all this comes to fruition? Well, the first thing is always screening. So when people visit their general practitioner, for example, making sure that there's training in place so that people are being asked the right questions, you know, how, what, what's your drinking like? What's your cannabis use like? Is it going above certain thresholds? And then for people who are engaging in these products at problematic levels, are there resources in terms of providing uh, treatment and other interventions that can be helpful? So I think that it's, it's at the level of screening and also treatment. A question about cannabis in particular, because, I mean, it is still relatively new in terms of legal sales. So um, does that sort of weigh into these findings somewhat in terms of maybe it's still just gaining in popularity and more people are, are, are buying it legally than before? I mean, can this all be attributed solely to the pandemic, specifically with cannabis? That's a great question. And it's something that, unfortunately, we can't precisely tease out. Okay. But we think that there's definitely a, a factor here that the pandemic, in addition to imposing a lot of stress and boredom on people, may have made people think, well, I'd rather just buy legally online than deal with buying from a dealer or uh, otherwise violating the lockdown orders. So I think that we saw prior to the pandemic a really steep increase as legalization took effect over those pre-pandemic 16 months. 
But it may very well be that a unintended, essentially favorable consequence of the pandemic would be pushing people away from the quote-unquote black market, the contraband market, and into the legal market, which in general is a good thing. Excellent. Okay. Great insight. Thanks so much, James. Appreciate your time this morning. Great to talk to you. Thank you very much. That is James McKillop, who is director of McMaster University's Peter Boris Center for Addictions Research. And I don't think this is really all that shocking, right? Because if you remember, um, we were talking about the whole uh, amount of substances that were being bought. And a lot of people self-reporting that they were drinking a lot more than they had before the pandemic. You know, I think a lot of people just found themselves stuck at home and alcohol consumption went up for a whole lot of people. And we knew that that was going to be uh, perhaps, perhaps for some people, a negative outcome of the way the pandemic affected their behavior. Going to talk about, uh, well, Facebook, but kind of not really the Facebook story necessarily, the new Facebook story. They're desperately trying to um, get your mind off all the information that we've learned about them in the past month or so with all the problems that they face. Uh, And they unveiled last week or the week before this thing called the metaverse. That's the next initiative to come out of Facebook, the metaverse, which is, as far as I can tell, like a virtual world that you'll have a character that inhabits this virtual world. But we know the problems that Facebook has presented, right? And a lot of us knew it way before the whistleblower got started. Um, Most people did, I think. Um, But now there's this new view of Facebook and social media in general and these platforms and the impact that they have on us and what we need to be aware of and is there anything we can do about them. Now, Metaverse is just going to expand that discussion. So get some insight on what we can expect and maybe what we should be thinking about. We're going to chat with Dr. Wendy Wong, who's a professor of political science and the Canada Research Chair in Global Governance and Civil Society and the Research Lead of the Schwartz-Reisman Institute for Technology and Society at the University of Toronto. Dr. Wong, thank you for your time. I appreciate you joining us today. Hi, Shay. Thanks for having me. So when we talk about this Facebook metaverse, um, what do we expect? What do, we ex- do we know? Do we know what this metaverse ultimately will be? So we don't know much, of, uh, much at all right now because it doesn't exist, as you point out. And so a lot of what's out there is imagination and aspiration. But I think the basic idea, um, this is my understanding as a non-technologist, is that it's an immersive Internet. So, you know, one way to think about it might be a bunch of virtual spaces that link together for lots and lots of people at the same time. So okay. instead of being on the Internet, you're in the Internet. Right. And you're sort of, you're a person inhabiting this virtual world and you're moving around and interacting with other people and going different places, right? Like almost like anything you would do in the real world, you're going to do in this virtual world if it works as it's expected to. I mean, that's sort of the idea, I think, is that, you know, and, and probably things that we we don't really have a sense of right now because we haven't created this this, this metaverse where we have a right. sort of a parallel existence virtually, right? So one way we can start thinking about what's possible is to look at some gaming experiences we have out there like Roblox or Fortnite that are pretty immersive, um, but these are just, you know, standalone games for now. Right, exactly. Okay. Um, we'll get to that in a second. First of all, all of the concerns that we have about Facebook that have been brought to light recently, the impact it has on mental health, that it has on democracy, that it has on, you name it, right across the spectrum. Um, do we expect a lot of those will just be transferred into this metaverse? 
Yeah, I mean, Facebook hasn't really had a good track record to date, no. right, in terms of thinking about a lot of these issues that are now emerging as super crucial because we now know that social media has negative effects on these things. Um, and, and so I think the other problem is that we have to think about Facebook's reach as being global, yeah. right? It reaches three and a half billion people through all of its various products on a monthly basis. That's a lot of people. And so, you know, one of the things is that if we don't find some answers to some of these basic human rights questions that are arising through the use of social media and the Internet, um, you know, those are just going to carry over into any metaverse or any sort of future we, we create um, and so some of the, the questions that have come up are about privacy and surveillance, you know, freedom of expression, freedom from discrimination. You mentioned, you know, democracy. So, you know, freedom to, to have fair and free elections. These are some of the concerns that are out there. And then another concern that I think that hasn't been resolved or, or, or excuse me, addressed very much is we don't really have a sense about what to do about all these data that are being collected about us. Um, on social media platforms and certainly going into the metaverse. That'll also be a, a, a concern. Um, when you talk about human rights, uh, that's interesting to me. G- give me some examples of how you think this, you know, these platforms are affecting human rights and what we need to be watching for. I mean, so one example is thinking about, um, as you mentioned, so so how they affect elections, right? How much information or misinformation is being distributed on these platforms and what are the choices that these platforms are making and how, because so many people are engaged on these platforms and some of the, some people get you know, the majority of the information um, from social media, that it affects the way that we can exercise, um, you know, some of the things that human rights are trying to protect. So the basic values of human autonomy, human dignity, equality, and this idea of community, um, they're being affected by the way that social media kind of filters information and reality for us. Um Typically, when we're talking about these social media platforms and other internet platforms, it's a game of catch-up that we seem to always be playing. Like, oh, we need to regulate Facebook. You know, Facebook's been around for 10 years, 15 years. Uh, Is this a chance for us to sort of try and get something right before it is something all of us are doing all day, every day? I think that's really tough, right? And I think this is, you know, on the one hand, I, I really see a unique opportunity here, which is to think about what we would want um, in a space that doesn't yet exist, right? And this is what motivated Jamie Duncan and I to, to write this piece. It's to really get us thinking about what things could have gone better in advance right. of social media and what we can do going forward in a, in a space that doesn't yet exist. So how can we design a, a better metaverse, right? So, so I think what we didn't do with social media or the internet more generally is center the conversation around potential human rights harms. We, we thought a lot about potential human rights benefits, but we didn't think about some of the harms that are that are arising now, and we're really living with those consequences. So I think the metaverse gives us a, a chance to at least talk in advance about some of these values that are that are being affected and what we want protected going forward. Um, obviously, you know, we can't perfectly predict how a technology will change the way we live or perhaps how we even think about ourselves. And certainly, you know, one of the things that we probably didn't anticipate was to what extent social media would really permeate our lives, as you said. You know, we're using it all the time, every day. And, and more, more broadly, the, the devices we have in our pockets, yeah. right, how much data are being collected about us every second by merit of having these devices that are so useful, but at the same time, um, really bringing up questions of, what it means to collect data about people, and should we have should we have claims over over those data, or or you know at least the right to opt out of some of that? Um, so, uh, for me, 
whenever we talk about trying to somehow regulate the internet, I think it's, if not impossible, it's almost impossible because that's sort of what the internet is. Every single person on the planet has access to the platform. So when you talk about trying to safeguard human rights and things like that, is that even possible with with platforms like this? And if it is, who should we look to to try and do it? Is it government? Is it the platform itself? Yeah, I think, you know, you're talking about regulation. And a lot of times when we think about regulation, we're thinking about what governments can do. And certainly, I think governments of, of all kinds, whether we think about, you know, national governments or or even subnational governments can, can play a role. I think the international community can also play a role. We can create international standards like human rights, you know, that exist as global frameworks that then states and other entities can draw on. But I, I do think that companies themselves really yeah. need to center human rights in the creation of their products, right? So to protect human dignity, to think about what happens to human autonomy when they create a product like social media that, that's based on engagement, right? It's, it's, you know, increasing engagement to, to make that product work. And so I think that that's really what, you know, we saw as, as this is a good time. There are a lot of metaverse enthusiasts out there, people working on it right now so that it can happen one day. And rather than waiting to see what happens, I think we need to integrate the values that human rights are trying to protect into the design of the metaverse from the ground up, if we can do that. And that's going to require, you know, governments to get involved. That's also going to require, I think, a lot of these companies like Facebook um, to, to really think through the consequences of, of their actions and learn lessons from what we know about social media. Well, they don't have a sterling track record on that <laughs> to no. this point, right? Yeah, but I think also they're pretty sensitive at this point yes. um, to criticism. I mean, they recently announced, although it's sort of a conditional announcement, they said, look, we're going to stop using facial recognition technologies for now, <laughs> right? So, right, yeah. I mean, it seems like they're sensitive to some of the major criticisms that are out there. I mean, they, they rebranded as meta, you know, all these things. And I, and I think, you know, Zuckerberg himself has said about the metaverse that we need to think about norm setting and new types of governance as a result of the metaverse. And, and I, you know, let's talk about it now. What kinds of norms do we want in that metaverse? And what can Facebook and other companies developing that metaverse do in advance to help us realize those norms so that we don't have to say, oh, my gosh, look at all that's going on. Um, we need to really fix this when you know, millions of people have been affected already. Yeah, exactly. Let's try and do it before it's too late. Uh, great discussion. Thanks so much, Dr. Wong. Really appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you for having me. Yeah, you bet. Um, it is a unique opportunity because if you think about all the issues around, uh, you name it, whatever social media platform you want to talk about, um, they all have issues. Facebook is definitely, to my mind, in what we're learning from the whistleblower and all the rest, uh, the most destructive uh, in terms of the way that it's been operating. But we're at an opportunity here where before this metaverse arrives, let's have the discussions about, okay, this is where these other things have gone so horribly, horribly wrong. And how can we address that in the new reality, whatever it may be? Again, I'm really, really skeptical that you can actually change it permanently. You can actually come in and say, okay, this is what we're going to do to make sure this doesn't happen. Because in my mind, that's what the internet is, right? It, it, in a sense, it is meant to be unregulated. When you have something that literally every single person on the planet has access to, if you've got a cell phone, not every single person, I understand, but if you're carrying an iPhone or you can go to an internet cafe or whatever, you have equal access to that platform. And the whole point of that is universal access 
Say what you want. Do what you want. How do you regulate that? I, I, I don't think you can, and I don't know if you should. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us. Music.